Welcome once again, golf nerds. It's uh, episode 230. Doscientos Trente. That's right, golf spiritual leader still working on his Spanish. Uh, welcome, amigas and amigos, chicos and chicas, and my friend, mi grande hermano, Senior Tim the Maestro. Mental performance coach Tim O'Connor. Hello, sir. Hola. Hello. Hello. How do you say a basic word like golfer in Spanish? Yugador. Yugador? Uh, anyone that plays, the word to play in Spanish is yugadores. Yugadores de football. Yugadores de golf. Um, I'm glad I knew the answer to that because I've been uh, studying Spanish uh, total los días like... Cientos uh, Diaz Days. So 110 days in a row. But you're so composed. I'm not. Here's the thing about Spanish. I will tell you, it's. Um, I had this conversation with a humble and Fred listener just before we started recording because he's also doing uh, this uh, voice learning app. Learning anything has with it, it turns out, an inherent. I don't know. Not only we use the word trepidation, but like. Like, I want to be good at this. And so there's this results, process, struggle, even when you're trying to learn something like Spanish, which really there's no, there's no, uh, the consequences are one day I'll be able to speak it better. But in my mind, I'm so competitive that I can find myself getting uptight when I don't know the answer to something. This is a true story. Because like, I, I'm not throwing clubs, but I'll, if I get it wrong, I'm like, God damn it. You know, I should know that. And then I realized the other day, I said to my friend, I said, I realized the other day, I don't need to be scratch at Spanish just yet. You know, I can calm down. I can ease into it because right now I'm a solid 33. Like I am. I'm like a beginner, beginner level um, learner. And it's given me so much. uh, it It reminds me so much when you're learning to golf or some empathy for people that are learning to golf. Um, we have our guest standing by, but let's uh, acknowledge the fact this program is brought to you, and um, we're very excited. This is the first time this has ever happened. Um, so our, our clothing sponsor is whoisoscarbravo.com. I mean, the, the clothes are just ridiculous. But as soon as we got on the Zoom call today, Tim, what did we see? We saw that we're both wearing the same shirt. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I immediately thought, is this like going to a wedding and seeing that, oh my God, Bernice is wearing the same dress as That's I right. am. I'm Bernice and I'm wearing the same dress as Mildred. But I'll tell you, I, cho- I I love this. These clothes are ridiculous. Who is OscarBravo.com? Why don't you find out for yourself? Uh, I was asked the other day if, uh, if you can appreciate, like maybe you can articulate this better than me because like, I, I don't know, like, the shirts are so nice, but how do we describe it? I mean, they're they're bespoke, they're tailor made. They are the best feeling polo, if a polo can be feeling. Yes, <laughs> that I've ever worn. I mean, it's just like it, it's kind of like being buck naked. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, it feels just. Uh, there's no <laughs> restriction. It just feels awesome, even if it, you know, I played, it got a little warm there, like zero feeling of any, yeah. you know, being entrapped by my polo. So, no, it's amazing. Here's the thing. I'm, a, I'm as a guy that does his own laundry now, and I'm in between uh, relationships, I'm worried. I, I actually was looking on the, did you know on the dish, uh, the dish on the dishwasher? Yeah, I wash my clothes in the dishwasher. Did you know no. on the washer that it actually has a setting for delicates? Because I'm watching these on Delicates, dude. Duh. Oh, well, I didn't know. 38 years, pal. All right. Easy now. Um, so thanks to uh, whoisoscarbravo.com and, of course, our uh, title sponsor. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things. Distance and forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the all-new Stealth 2 with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. Wait, did you say forgiveness like far or forgiveness like... Forgiveness. 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 I'm hearing far. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Exactly. Rory gets it. The all-new TaylorMade Stealth 2. Learn more at TaylorMade.ca. 
Yeah, TaylorMadeGolf.ca. I just want to tell you, uh, a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago, I was saying, oh, I haven't had a chance to use the Stealth Driver outdoors, but uh, something happened. I was finally getting some range time, and I can tell you, my friends, it is uh, far and it's forgiving. You see with that? If there was a yes. if there was a Venn diagram where far and giving forgiveness, I'm just trying to be impressive for our guest. I just wanted Edward I just wanted our I, I see how that works. I just wanted our guest to know that I can use Venn diagram in a sentence. You're not on Hal Sutton's show anymore, my friend. <laughs> I uh, a couple weeks ago, Zogel sent me a link. He says, "Yeah, this you got to have this guy uh, on your show." Uh, he's a guy that uh, Zogel told us he's a guy that works with uh, Mind Track, and uh, I said okay. So I watched uh, his episode with uh, Hell Sutton, who's I, I love Hell Sutton. I think he's great. But uh, I said to myself, Raymond Pryor is going to have a completely different experience when he gets on uh, Swing Thoughts. <laughs> That's why I threw Venn diagram at him. He is a uh, he's a, an author. He is a uh, psychologist, sports psychologist, and a, uh, a very fine um, gentleman who's written a book called Golf Beneath the Surface, The New Science of Golf Psychology. Raymond Pryor, welcome to Swing Thoughts. 230 episodes, guys. Felicidades. Gracias, amigo. Part, but what, I missed that last part. Que means uh, how exciting. So I grew up in Turkey, New Mexico, so I am fluent in Spanglish. Ah, see. Yeah, there you go. So also, if you use all your opportunities where you're learning Spanish and it gets frustrating, if you use those uh, moments where you're cursing at yourself and do it in Spanish, they become more of an opportunity for you to learn as well. So you can become learning as well. Well, it's funny because I I golfed uh, for a couple months in Mexico during the winter, and I learned all the golf terminology in Spanish, including how to swear on the golf course. Cabron! Uh, anyways, Raymond, um, thanks for doing this. Uh, we're all connected through uh, Richard Zokel and MindTrack. Raymond's on the uh, staff there as well. Um, but the book you've written, uh, let's just get right to it. because and, and I said, Tim and I, who are longtime you know, freebie mongers, I said to Tim before the show, I said, I bought this book. Like, like it felt weird. <laughs> yeah, you're getting free clothes that you have to wash on your own. The idea that you have to buy a book on your own that might provide you years of reflective experience just sounds ridiculous. It is. It? Okay, yeah. Tim and I. Tim's been in the golf business for a long time. This is not normal for us. It made yeah, us AFGO. It's, it made us feel very anxious. Mm-hmm. I'll, I want to just get right to it, though. It's, and, and I think a lot of golfers listening, okay, okay, whatever. How, at some point, we're going to have Raymond talk about the practical applications of the psychology of this. But what I really enjoyed that you did, and I've tried to absorb it, is in the beginning of the book, you sort of give us a bit of a crash course on how the brain works. And then you're going to show us how it applies to how it works within golf. So why don't we start there? Because one of the first things I got out of this old brain, new brain and what they produce anxiety and nerves. But you kind of um, pause it, if you will, that we act the way we act because that's how our brains are built. Yeah, the human um, behavior and how humans respond to things is actually really predictable. If you understand just the basics of how our brain is designed. And in the first section of the book, I kind of lay out two of the like kind of larger regional areas of the brain. You alluded to them. Our old brain is just the fastest, strongest parts of our brain that move way faster and are far stronger than the younger parts of our brain, hence old brain and young brain. And if you understand our brain, the overarching purpose of how our brain is designed is to keep us alive. Technically speaking, there are no parts of our brain designed for thriving. So we have to use survival in order to thrive. But if you don't understand the basics of that, oftentimes what we do is we fight how our brain is designed. And then that typically makes things more, makes it more difficult for us to thrive in the settings that we really want to thrive. For example, if you're trying to learn a new language over the age of 25, it's important to understand that your brain is designed to maintain the neural pathways that is already established And so it is going to take longer and more effort to learn a language past the age of 25 than it is when you're under 25 
and your brain is designed to create new neural pathways. You know, if I can just jump back in quickly, you know, we had David Ledbetter on the show uh, got about a month ago, and here's what the guy has taught for 45 years, some of the best players in the world. He's arguably one of the best teachers ever, and he said something. He said, by the time a person is 27, 28, 29, they've basically, their golf swing DNA is set. And I'm it's, because how hard it is for new myelin to be built. That's right. It's not uh, set, but it is going to take more to rewire it. So if you are over the age of 25 and making swing changes or learning golf, it is going to take more time and be more difficult than it is if you start when you're younger. Because our brain is designed to create new neural pathways while we're younger, which means they're gonna, not only going to be created, but they're going to myelinate faster. Uh, whereas when we're older, it takes longer to do that. Well, there's such an increased awareness of, you know, the mental game, as it were. And, and so a lot of avid golfers are reading sports psychology books or psychology books in general. But a lot of them find that they still succumb to the same old demons as they always have. So speak to the, I don't know what it is. It's that unawareness that the old brain is what's causing a lot of their difficulties? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say diff- it depends on what you mean by demons and difficulties, but I will say this. If you're looking to make change and perhaps move away from some of the psychological and behavioral patterns we have that get in our way, you understanding that your old brain is designed to keep those in action until you pay attention to them in a way where it realizes it's not helping, but our brain is designed to pay attention to our sensory experience first and prioritize that more than the actual natural consequences in our environment. So we live in a sensory rich consequence poor environment based on how our brain is designed. So if you're going, well, I'm not confident. I don't want to just be confident. But every time you step on the first tee, your sensory experience, meaning your direct experience is telling you, this is a very threatening event. I don't like the way this feels and therefore produces anxiety for you. Unless you're paying attention to it in a more mindful way, your old brain is designed to go, oh, here we are on the first tee. Here's where we meet it with anxiety. This is what we do again and again and again. And just saying, hey, go on the first tee and just relax this time works against how your brain works and it further ingrains those types of responses. I, I, I love when you said I'm one of the I've, I've underlined a couple of things that, that I was I read and I thought this is brilliant. One of them was you said just with just that trying to tell yourself to quiet your mind actually produces more anxiety around it. But the phrase you could uh, I'm, I can't remember if you uh, if you quoted somebody but this is a great line. The mind is designed to pump thoughts like the heart is designed to pump blood. I'm like, that is so true because we're always fighting against this idea that, you know, and, and no matter how much we meditate, the whole point of meditation is to recognize that thoughts are thoughts and just not to attach to them. And that's kind of your point in the beginning of the book. Yeah, my point in the beginning of the book is if you understand how your brain works, you don't have to fight it because when you have thoughts, you go, oh, yeah, this is exactly what my brain is supposed to be doing. Right. Or- have feelings we have thoughts about our thoughts that then create feelings oh that makes sense because that's exactly what my brain is designed to do in the same way that if you hit a shank you go oh yeah well that's exactly the result you would deliver the hosel to the golf ball right Right? it's a cause and effect um and like you said many people fight their thoughts or try to turn them off or suppress them because they think they can and the bottom line is that's not how our brain works in fact if you do that you'll only amplify them and so, as you're alluding to, if we kind of give ourselves more freedom to think and, and, and interact with our thoughts and feelings mindfully, meaning you can coexist with them, then there's space between us and them. In psychology, we call this cognitive diffusion, the ability to have a thought and feeling without attaching to it or treating it as if it's a fact. Well, how do, you, how do we take this awareness you're speaking of and apply it to someone who's struggling with their game. I had a, a beer last night with a guy who was just uh, apoplectic that he'd hit eight shanks that day. And he stood up beside the table and he said, so I worked on getting my weight back. And like, he just went on for about six different swing thoughts. And I went, well, unfortunately, that's your problem right there is all of that. So speak to how that, shall we say, the survival brain 
makes it difficult to uh, well you know people are trying to correct things and but it just uh, they don't seem to correct them what's what's happening there okay buckle up here comes a good story and i will eventually get to the answer to your question you don't okay, have so. to worry about uh, taking your time yeah. my friend we got time we, we got this, all this, kinds this, of time our, this, uh, the name so, of the podcast really should be the verbosity golf podcast because that's yeah, what we're that, all about that's better title much better okay um so i was at a pj tour event um couple months ago now and i'm talking with one of my clients on the range and behind me so my back is to kind of the right side of the range uh you hear the the obvious sound of a shank which by the way happens on pj tour driving ranges from time to time uh and then again another shank and another and it's it's kind of a bit of a tin cup uh situation going on where it's just hosel rockets on the range from a player um, that player, their that player's caddy knows me a little bit. We've seen each other around, and he comes over, he taps me on the shoulder, and he's like, "My guy's got a tea time in eight minutes. Can you please come help?" <laughs> I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not into the quick tip, quick tips or hacks, or I'm not a guru, anything like that. But I'm like, okay, let me see what I can do so I can help you out. So I go over and I'm ask the player, and he's like, "I can't stop hitting shanks." I'm like, "Okay, tell me a little bit about what's going on." He's like, "I hit a shank, and then..." Now I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to do this. And I was like, okay, cool. So first of all, I love a good shank. Show me another one. Just like full permission to just shank this thing. If you can get it to draw off the hosel, that would be really cool. Like whatever you can get going on. Uh, so I said, just like, let me see a shank. Well, he flushes the next one. And I was like, no, hold on a second. Time out. I said, full permission to shank it. Like hit a shank, please. And flushes another one. Right. And then all of a sudden I'm like, no, dude. Seriously, like, please shank one. Well, and he flushes another one. So on the surface, it might look like all of a sudden I just sprinkled fairy dust over him and his shanks went away. That's not what happened. What happened was I gave him permission, even though I can't actually give it, but I indirectly gave him permission to do the thing that he was trying to resist. So what happened was his level of acceptance for what he does not want to happen increased our old brain prioritizes avoidance faster and stronger than our young brain can think about consciously and prioritize pursuit the only way for us to consistently take out multitasking with avoidance is to be willing to accept all of the things that we do not like mm-hmm. we have a yip situation a shank situation and uh, instability of confidence situation the underlying mechanism underneath, underneath psychologically is I'm resisting the things I do not want to happen. Now, again, the misconception is if I resist failure as much as possible, that will lead me towards success. But if you understand how our brain works and how it is designed to prioritize surviving and avoiding the things that are a threat to survival first and foremost, and by the way, without even thinking about whether it's perceived or real. So it does not matter whether you perceive threat or it's real threat. If it registers to your old brain as threat, it will prioritize that as avoidance. Only way to stop multitasking with avoidance in a way that your brain will prioritize avoidance is to be willing to experience the things that we do not want to experience. Right. What happens is your old brain goes, oh, well, if that's not something I need to save you from, then we can actually prioritize going, here's the shot I want to hit and where I want it to go and give ourselves the best chance of executing that freely. And by the way, the two tenths of a second from the top of your backswing to impact is plenty of time, about five times over for your brain to choose avoidance over pursuit if you're giving it both options. And, and well, that's a, first of all, it's a great story. And it does. Uh, it's another part of the book you were talking about, the processing speed at which our brains operate. To your point about those two seconds, plenty of time for your brain to do a bunch of stuff. One of the things that we've talked to uh, about in this show a lot with some people, I, I, I said to Tim, I said, and there's a part in the book where he names a bunch of people and two of them have been on our show. And I'll get to that. OK, smart guy. But you, we, we talk a lot about being externally focused. And in that particular example and in the book, you talk about. Um, you say that when an athlete executes a skill, having a narrow and external focus is most effective. It's the opposite of what most, most club golfers do. 
your guy last night, Timmy, talking about all the things they have to do to fix their shanks or or put in hit it better or whatever. When really a lot of what they are missing is the target focus, the subject object, the idea that it's out there somewhere, because as fast as our brains are going, the idea, and I've said this before, if you see people standing over a golf ball and you can kind of see them flipping through a Rolodex. Do you know what a Rolodex is? I know you're kind of young, but. I, I think I have it. It's right next to my rule. Yeah, that's right. It's right next to the, Tim and I have an abacus. We'll show you later. Yeah, so the fax can, machine. Exactly. We'll fax you a picture of it. But you can see them going through a, a itemizing list of shit they're supposed to do, which is the opposite of what you got that tour player to do. And then it's the opposite of what, you know, where good golf can can live is outside of ourselves. Yeah. One of our tendencies as human beings, when we feel uncertain or uncomfortable is to become more introceptive, meaning our focus goes internal to what we're thinking, what we're feeling again, into our direct sensory experience instead of out to our environment where our performance happens. So as much as our inner experience is super important, our performance happens externally regardless of, unless you're doing chess or math problems, but even then your focus is on the board or on the formula or whatever it is for us. It's really important for us to pay attention to how introceptive we get because that moves us away from where our performance happens. Hence the external focus for us that tends to be most efficient. I'm going to throw it back to you in a second, Tim, but this sort of leads to another part that I really found interesting. And I think you'd love this too, Timmy is the idea that Raymond's proposed that there's when you talk about the doing mode of mind the doing mode versus the being mode. And we would think that the doing mode is where, well, why don't you explain it? Where, oh, if I just do a lot of things, then then this will happen. But it's really not the case. It's not. So we might think of doing mode of mind as in, this is the type of relationship I have with my own thoughts and feelings, right? Now, a doing mode of mind is not a negative mode of mind. It's a problem-solving kind of mind. It's looking to close the space between where I am now and where I want to be, or widen the space between where I am and where I don't want to be. And if for external problems, it is super efficient, right? If you're trying to fix an automobile, closing the gap between transmission that doesn't work and one that does is a super helpful formula. As it relates to our own thoughts and feelings, what happens is we start to try to fix something that doesn't need to be fixed. And instead, if we relate to them through a being mode of mind, this is one that is more mindfully constructed meaning I can pay attention to my thoughts and feelings on purpose rather than trying to avoid them or distract myself from them. Two, I'm going to pay attention to them with acceptance, meaning I'm not going to fight what I have. I'm going to learn to coexist with it as it is, but without treating it necessarily as a fact just because it exists. Mm -hmm. Like Again, our brain is designed to think. Just because it thinks doesn't mean it's necessarily accurate or true. And then the last part of a being mode of mind is that we pay attention to our experience here in the present moment. And the bottom line is we are higher functioning, happier, healthier human beings when we are not wrestling with our own thoughts and feelings and when we are present more often. And so when we stop trying to problem solve our inner experience, what happens is we now have space to be able to focus more externally to where our performance actually happens rather than multitasking with our internal climate. That is so rich, and I, I, I love it, but it's so counterintuitive to the golf culture we're in. Right. It, the, you know, the golf culture, if we just sort of use the Internet as a representation of that culture, it's all do, do, do. Match this model. If you want to do it right, you have to do this certain thing. So it's all about the doing. And the counterintuitive part is that just by being – connecting to a target i'm going to move i'm going to try and send this ball here it's almost like it's too easy it it, it doesn't make sense to people because as howard said they, they go through the checklist most guys especially they want to do it right so they apply all these strategies they've employed through the rest of their life you know um analyze the data ex, you know uh come up with a plan execute the plan so that's the doing versus the just, you know, being you're okay just as you are. Yeah. So that, that, I, you try yeah, to make some sense of that. that I would say, 
But what that's often reflecting, as you said, like it almost feels too easy. If we think about golf, golf is already really difficult. If you think about the margin for error just to hit a functional golf shot, it's like the size of a dime, basically. And then you add in perhaps you might be in the rough or the sand or whatever. Um, if we remove all the self-imposed constraints from golf, it feels easier, mm-hmm. a lot easier. And I mean, that's what you're talking about when we people are in flow state. Flow right. state is total immersion in the task at hand, essentially without multitasking with anything. And so what it means is I'm only focused on what's required without adding anything self-imposed to it. And surprise, surprise, there's an ease of motion and an ease of functioning in flow state. But Raymond, I want to come back to something you said about it. And I, and I, I read it, but now that you've said it out loud, it makes even more sense. Because, you know, I, I've played a lot of competitive golf as an amateur. And I've been on the first tee of tournaments where as much, you know, as mindful as I think I am, you still start to feel nervous and anxious. And as you said, we, we don't need, it's almost like you have to learn to be comfortable with it. You don't need to fix it. But what we tend to do as human beings is we think, okay, we feel this way. I've got to stop feeling this way. And now all of a sudden, a lot of mental, you know, um, energy goes to that. And you, you stop seeing what's out there that yeah. I've got. And, and, you know, uh, we would say this, uh, Tim and I, have dozens of times. You know, all of a sudden, you're not feeling the golf club in your hand anymore. You're not feeling the earth beneath your feet. One of our uh, friends, uh, you know, a great uh, mental performance coach, Paul Doolin, you may have heard him, uh, you know, talks about, you know, the eyes up, tits up, keeping your eyes externally focused. Um, and and it's, it's really interesting what you said about because a lot of people feel bad about feeling bad. And it becomes a vicious circle of it's all happening and nothing is getting you out toward the task at hand. Correct. So, so two layers to that. When we try to suppress thoughts and emotions, they amplify. So think about like a soda bottle. If it's got a little fizz in it and you, oh, oh, I need to get rid of this fizz by shaking this thing more. You're building more pressure. Right. Right. If we learn to coexist with our thoughts and feelings, they remain at kind of baseline level. So if I'm feeling some nerves on the first tee and I go, uh-oh, I shouldn't be feeling nerves. This is a bad thing. Then I'm very likely to start moving toward anxiety. And then when I feel anxiety, I'm going to likely start thinking about, well, how do I create certainty in the future, which the formula is you can't, in which case then now I have layers of emotion and thoughts building on top of each other, not because I'm standing on the first tee but because I'm trying to fight my inner experience while I'm standing on the first tee. And I would push back on the word, get comfortable being nervous because again, it's still suggesting if you're uncomfortable, you need to move toward comfort. And the bottom line is we can coexist with discomfort. We do it all the time. And if we're willing to just, instead of get comfortable being uncomfortable, the phrase I would use is just be uncomfortable. And then what we realize is I can be uncomfortable and still be able to focus on what I want to do and execute my skills as intended. But when I get uncomfortable, fight that discomfort, all of a sudden what happens is I then get, again, more introceptive instead of out to where my performance is happening, which is my target down the course, the club in my hands, my alignment to a golf shot. And now all of a sudden I've created a variety of things that are interfering with my own ability to execute my own skills simply because I wasn't willing to just sit with some discomfort or a quote-unquote negative thought to begin with. Yeah, well, I mean, we've all seen golfers who look obviously nervous, but they're still able to perform. You can even see their handshaking sometimes, but they're able to perform. But we've been talking a lot of, I mean, a lot of really cool ideas and concepts here, but how about for the guys who are or men and women who are going to play this weekend – and that they struggle with, with, say, with the thoughts they got all the time and the you know, reoccurring behaviors that they want to shake. What would be a couple of, say, practical things that you would offer that they could employ when they start to fall back into these, you know, this very active mind or their, their old habits? The first is everything starts with awareness for us. Awareness is the first line of information processing for our brain. So mindfulness and meditation is the research behind how helpful it is for us is undeniable. And the reason it's undeniable is because we start paying attention to the natural consequences rather than just our sensory experience. So if you can pay attention to your patterns, you're already one step into being able to perhaps do something different. Like 
as soon as you become aware of something in a more conscious and, and non-judgmental way, you, you've got your first step going forward, which is great. So the first thing I do is just pay attention to it. The second, I would say, instead of fighting it, pay attention to what you're getting from it, really. If every time you hit a shot you don't like, you get immensely angry, which is something many golfers experience. Instead of paying attention to, well, I'm just angry because I'm supposed to be angry that I hit a poor golf shot, ask yourself, what are you actually getting from that? Not in a judgmental, finger-wagging way, but like, what do you actually get? You know, the laundry list that I ask uh, the clients I have is one, does it make your confidence more stable or less stable responding this way? Does it help you be present with your next shot and deal with it as it is, wherever it might be, or does it make it more difficult and a more emotional experience for you? Does it make decisions on the golf course more emotional or does it make it more strategic? Which, by the way, we're finding out through advanced math, course strategy matters, right? A lot. Does it make golf more fun or less fun? Does it help you score better or not? Does it help you take the skills you've been using on the range and actually take them to the course or does it make it more difficult? And if you pay attention to what we do and what we actually get from it, our brain will automatically update how rewarding and how much utility it sees in those types of responses and it makes them less enchanting as we go forward and then the last thing i would get to people is have a better option for you the better option is always what's required right now not what was required then not what's required in two shots three shots three holes five holes three rounds what's required right now what is the task required in the moment not the many tasks that we self-impose from other time frames. Which is why, so, I was going to say, which is why I think um, Mind Track, yes, it's the first time I've mentioned it this show. <laughs> I know, it's my new toy. But it's why Mind Track, I think, is one of those things that is so simple, as Zokal would say, and I'm sure you would agree. It's simple to understand the idea of, of making the assessment of this particular shot, this event, making that the priority overall over everything else, which is hard to do when you're still thinking about a hole, two holes ago or something in the future where you're out of time, as you say, you know, as we would say, being where your body is. But the part I want to, the part you're going to love, Tim, is this. So we've been talking about mindfulness and meditation and, and being externally focused. And in uh, this Mr. Pryor's book, it says, and I quote, a massive body of interrelated research featuring studies spearheaded by the following. <clears throat> Ellen Langer on the show and some other people, some other people, some other people. Judson Brewer on the show. You know, listen, dude, this isn't be the right club today. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah. Anyway. This is far more sophisticated. <laughs> That's right. Very high minded. Very high minded. Yeah. yeah I, I should have had my pinky up the whole time while we were doing no, it. No one has ever said anything remotely that this show is sophisticated in any way. But, but it is, we are very congruent in how we think, which is one of the reasons we wanted you on the show. But the other is. In trying, in my ham-handed way of trying to explain mind track to some people, a couple of people that I've, I've worked with, some people I worked with on decade with, um, what I try and say, maybe you can be, uh, articulate this, certainly better than me, how assessment leads to better executions, how being intensely interested in the process of assessing the shot invariably gives you a better chance at an excellent execution. Yeah. So when we are multitasking, meaning we're just, we're not on time, on time, meaning in the present and focused on the task at hand without multitasking, what happens is we get worse at what we're doing. So our assessment of it is muddled. For example, again, another, here comes another story. Um, player that I work with, she comes off the course, just fuming. And she's like, Raymond, I missed eight putts inside of four feet, which if you're playing on the LPJ tour, it's just not good. Right. And she's like, I got to go hit a bunch of four footers. And I'm like, time out. How many of those putts that you missed inside of four feet were you on time and on target? Which is a phrase I use for my clients, meaning you're in the present moment and you are actually focused on the task without adding anything to it. Because if you don't do that, you don't actually know how well you executed your skills. And she said, when she thought about it, she goes, none of them. And my response to her was, look, you can go practice four footers for the next five hours. You're not addressing the source. The source is you were not focused on the task at hand when it was required, 
with a high enough level of acceptance. So you were the reason you were pulling every single putt. Now, by the way, your technique matters, but how freely you execute your technique depends on how much psychological space you have to do that. And psychological space is created in the present moment, period, end of sentence. Number two, as you're getting to is I cannot objectively and honestly evaluate what my skills are actually doing and how well I executed them if I don't create that psychological space to begin with, which means now I've interrupted my ability to get better in the long term because I'm not getting accurate information. If you're talking about a system like decade, when you go, well, here's my dispersion and therefore here's how I'm going to pick my point. Yeah, here's a modifier. Yeah, if on the driving range, you're dispersion is this big because you're playing shots freely but you go play on the course through anxiety you're not picking the right target because your dispersion is going to get bigger because you're going to be interrupting your own skills what mind track is focused on and what dick has this great framework for is that it brings our focus and assessment to can i actually pay attention to the task at hand the decision i'm making and then evaluate how well did i actually execute that because that opens the door to going can i actually learn because it, it objectively and honestly create, shows you where your error is. And the bottom line is our brain needs error to make progress. Our brain is designed to error correct, which is why perfectionists don't get better after a certain point on the learning curve because they're not allowing for the thing they actually need to get better. The mind track, the decade, and if you're talking about just our overall psychological state, what it does is it creates space for us to execute freely, which, by the way, includes the risk. You might find out you're not as good as you think you are. But if you do find that out, you can actually have more accurate and honest, objective information about where to go practice to get better rather than practicing to try to feel more confident, which is, by the way, the least stable form of confidence that you could possibly create. So, again, in in an effort to provide people with some really practical stuff that they could go out to their club and do. So rather than say someone's struggling with their chip, chip, chipping game, they go and practice for two hours, which I think is just useless. What would you suggest that they do instead? Well, I wouldn't say don't practice chipping, but I would want to know, are you practicing to get better? or Are you practicing to feel better? Because practicing to feel better you're multitasking with your feelings while you're actually trying to improve your skills. So it's very inefficient. Tell us though, Raymond, what are the, what are, cause I, I, I'm glad you asked that question, Tim, because when you, when your player said, I pulled four, eight, four footers, I'm like, okay, well then what do you tell them to do? So what's the nuance between practicing to get better or practicing to feel better about whatever shortfall you think you have? Yeah. The nuance is not so nuanced. It's am I practicing to make my skill set better or am I practicing to try to build confidence that I can execute freely the next day? One is I'm practicing to get better, which includes error, which includes some mistakes, which includes how do I actually correct my technical skills? The other one is how do I feel more certain that things are going to be okay tomorrow? And the bottom line is there's no amount of certainty in the future that right. any type of guarantee. To Tim's question... If what I would say to anybody who's struggling with any part of your game, I would want to know how freely you're actually executing it when score counts. Because if you're not executing it freely, you don't really know how it does. Now, again, you might execute it as freely as possible. And by as freely as possible, I mean willing to accept all the possible outcomes that you would hate the most. Until you actually do that, you don't really know what your skills are doing. The danger with not executing them freely is not only do you not find out what they're doing, but we tend to then go smother them with technique. And most people that come to me with the chipping yips, not only have they been battling the yips for a while, their short game technique is technically terrible. They typically drag the handle. They drag the leading edge because they're just trying to find face in some way or another. And ultimately what happens is now you, because you've been smothering a psychological cause with technical symptoms, you now have a technique issue and a psychological issue, and you have to correct one before you correct the other. Um, so I would say for anybody who's struggling with a certain part of your game, you have to go play it freely enough to find out what it's actually doing to then inform your practice. And that's a great thing you said about acceptance. Um, and that's a hard thing for players to do. I'm going to tell you, it's a hard, I had a great conversation with uh, Dick last week after a qualifier I was in. Because something happened on the course. I won't get into the... It's a longer story. But the short of it was, I thought I made a great assessment. 
And in that moment, and I made an excellent execution. It, it, it did exactly what I wanted it to do. But then when I get up to the green, I realize what I was doing was assessing it because I wasn't comfortable with the negative outcome of a hazard near the green, blah, blah, blah. And, it, and it's interesting because he and I talked just about this, that I really wasn't comfortable with some of the possible outcomes, which is I could have pulled it left, etc. And I actually didn't assess it correctly. It wasn't the right shot to hit in that moment. All the mind track parameters were right. Excellent assessment of the wrong shot and an excellent execution of the wrong ex- of assessment. I guess I'm not to get too complicated, but it all made sense to me because what I didn't do, I wasn't present enough to realize that isn't the shot I needed to hit in that moment. And so even though I pulled off the shot I wanted to, it turned out that my fear of the negative was still there and it led me to uh, a not an, the outcome I didn't want, which was, you know, yeah. hitting it, it 30 yards right. It wasn't your fear of the negative, it was your resistance to it. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that acceptance isn't void of fear. It just means that I'm willing to live with it, which again, as you mentioned, is difficult for us. Our default setting as human beings is to resist the things that we don't want. And it's amazing how when we open the door for those possibilities, it allows us more clarity of thought about what is the best course of action for us, not what is avoiding the worst course of action for us. Golf Beneath the Surface, the new science of golf psychology. It says a practical guide for composure under pressure, long-term growth, and a more fulfilling relationship with the game. Raymond Pryor, you're a very fine fellow. We hope you enjoyed yourself here today. We certainly did. Tim, any final words for uh, Raymond? I hope this won't be the last time you'll you'll speak with us. I no, I w- I, all I would say is, um, dear listeners... Listen to it once, this interview with Sir Raymond Pryor. Sir Raymond Pryor, again. yes. Because <laughs> there was a lot of amazing stuff in there. A That's lot right. of amazing stuff. And uh, and get the book. I mean, because it's, Raymond, you pack a lot of stuff <laughs> into a small space. And it's it's really great stuff. And so I just think that there may be some people who are kind of going, well, I don't know. But because I think it's amazing. So take a deep dive. Well, I will say about the book is it it's going to be more comprehensive than what's currently available in the field, but that's a good thing. Like if we're not really, if you're not reading something that is challenging you to like really absorb it and perhaps think about things in a different way, it's probably not going to be very valuable to you. Um, and, uh, and Howard, just for the record, I think they're working on a Spanish version for you. So it should be right up your Muy perfecto. Uh, yeah, a couple of semanas and we'll get it, get it there. Muchas gracias, mi, uh, mi nuevo uh, maestro. Fue uh, genial uh, tenetre en nuestro programa tonto. When I said to him, it was great having you on our silly little show. And you called him Tonto? Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a little Spanish nickname. Hasta, I thought it was the name of a horse and a old that's okay. cowboy show. Hasta yeah. proxima pronto, mi amigo. Get a shiver in the dark. Guys, hasta luego. Hasta luego, brother. Hasta mañana. Absolutely. There's Raymond right. Pryor. The book is called Golf Beneath the Surface. And uh, he's got a big brain. I know one thing. Um, it was a different. No, I think it was a different conversation for Raymond than uh, with Hal and uh, his sidekick, or but, uh, Carl Mars. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, he wasn't on with Carl. He, yes, he I, was. I, I know, but the one I saw, he was on with Hal, and Hal was great. He kept saying, "There's a lot of words in this book I don't understand." I'm like, "All right, Hal, fine. We get it. We get it. Thanks, Raymond." All right, guys. Be well. We'll see you. Yeah, I didn't hear him with uh, Carl. With see, Carl's got a big brain too. I could, we should go back and listen to that conversation. Oh my God, Tim! No, no, you can just there. He's gone now. Yeah, I had to look up how to say silly show. Nuestro programa tonto. Yeah, that's uh. You know, it's not. It's funny because the the part of the book that we dwelled on was like sort of the the um, foundation of why we act the way we act. But really, most of the book from here from that point on is all about awareness and mindfulness and acceptance. And I think it's pretty easy for the you know the average person. It's not super dense. You know, it's not a 
you know, I find some of the Judson Brewer stuff, you know, harder to digest. It's a little bit more mm-hmm. scholarly. Uh, Ellen Langer's same. You know, it's a bit more geeky, but his stuff is pretty, you know, because he works with tour players. I mean, it's pretty, yep. you know, easy to easy to access, I would say. Yeah, if you're working with tour players, that's a lot different than working with post-grad students. Exactly. You know, Yale or something. But I love what he said. You know, when I asked about that practical application of some of these things, and I, I just agree with him 100% in terms of it all starts with awareness. Awareness, awareness, awareness <laughs> is knowing what's actually happening. Just being aware that, oh, I'm, you know, in those, in my thoughts again. Yeah. You know, I'm tromping down the fairway thinking about how not to block my driver or another day where it's gone to shit again. Just that awareness is where then things can start to turn around. Otherwise, all these behaviors are essentially in our blind spots. And anyone you know, it's like it's someone who like tells like, say, inappropriate jokes. Not you. Okay. But someone who tells inappropriate jokes or says things and they're, like, they're unaware of their impact on other people. So, Well, there's a difference between being, you know hilarious and sometimes inappropriate and telling stupid racist jokes at a cocktail party. You know what I mean? I know the difference. Um, that type of person that doesn't seem to be able to read the room. Yeah. You know, I mean, people say shit to me all the time that I, that I go like, what do you really, do you really think that's my kind of humor? Because we're way off my friend. Um, Anyways, let's move on. We got uh, 15 or 20 minutes left in the program. Uh, great guy. I'm glad we got him on. And, um, and you can see why, you know, whether it's mind track or not, the idea of being intense about or very curious about what shot you've got to hit. What is the shot here? The old one shot at a time. We've been hearing that our whole golf lives. Never really understood how to do it. Mm-hmm. And even now, I'm just sort of getting my feet wet with it. But that example I gave, the, it all started with the fact I didn't want to hit it left because there was a hazard there. And I was avoiding that. And it wasn't, I wasn't comfortable with it. So I made an assessment that turned out to be the wrong shot. You know, I, I really should have just laid up and made a par. I ended up making a shitty bogey. And it, you know, it definitely threw me off kilter. It did. Um Anyway, we were talking a little bit before the show about some of the stuff going on in the world of golf. Of course, you covered the Ryder Cup at Oak Hill, which is about uh, three people outside of uh, Ontario. I don't know, about an hour and a half from where I'm sitting right now in Rochester, New York, maybe a couple hours with traffic. Um, what that was the year? Was it what year was it? Eight, not 89. 89 was when Strange won there. Um, I was know, it 90s? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was definitely in the 90s. Seve was the captain. Um, I was uh, working as a full-time golf writer reporting for uh, CBC Radio at the time. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Um, Europe was in its period of dominance mm-hmm. of uh, of the Americans. And it was just so fun. And, and just being able to be in the room with Seve holding court. Wow. Was amazing. He's just, he's a very funny man, uh, passionate. Um, and, uh, just the way he would use the language, you know, we're talking about Spanish, so it's perfect. Um, yeah, well, it's a pretty interesting golf course. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not much of a, you know, one of those guys, Oh, I'm going to play uh, Pebble Beach or I've played, uh, you know, insert famous golf course here. I mean, I did the Scotland thing like most people, but I, um, I always forget that I played a uh, very, the, the, probably the biggest tournament I've ever been, you know, invited to. And I didn't get invited. You had to, we had to send in your resume and they've, <laughs> they've been playing this tournament at Oak Hill for about 65 years. It's called the J.R. Williams. And it's a high level, uh, sort of amateur and senior am, tournament it's a two-man event and my partner uh, tim selfcott and i this is about six seven years ago sent in our resumes had to put all the tournaments you've played in and you get accepted and we got accepted and i can tell you playing the golf course was a thrill we missed the cut by one um we got to they, they put on it's it's really like a 
it's hard to describe. It's like being in a pro tournament. There's a pro-am that you play with some members and amateurs. And, and they have like a guest speaker. It was uh, Andy North was the guest speaker at one of the dinners. Oh, wow. Everyone's dressed up in jackets. Two quick stories. So Tim, um, he's at the clubhouse and I was on the range doing something. He texts me. He goes, you got to come in here. The clubhouse is, you'll see it on TV. You've seen it. It's massive. This Tudor style edifice. And it just looks like old money, right? And he says, you got to get in the clubhouse. I go, what? And you walk by all the scorecards of Trevino and Nicholas and Strange and all the famous people that have played there. And I said, where are you? He goes, come on. I'm in the basement. And in the basement of that clubhouse is a five-lane bowling alley. (laughs) You know you're you're in uh, white people money country when there's a bowling alley in the basement of the golf course. You know, in case you get bored. So that was kind of cool. And the second thing was we get to the first tee on our practice round. There's the East course, the West course, and we're playing a practice round on the East course. You play in the morning, you play the practice round in the afternoon, you play the West course in a pro-am. It's the greatest deal in golf. Cause it, I, I mean, whatever they charged us, you get five rounds of golf at Oak Hill. If you make the wow. cut, we got four. I'm on the first tee. We got a, but then they'd give you the, um, the pocket guide or whatever, the pro guide, you know, the, the yardage book, but it's also how to play the hole. So Tim's getting ready to hit and I'm looking through the pocket guide and we're playing like not the back tees, but we're playing the long senior tees. And I go, Tim, we have no chance. <laughs> I'm reading something. He goes, why? I said, it says here that Ben Hogan calls this one of the toughest opening holes in tournament golf. I said, Hogan thought it was tough. <laughs> what, what chance do we have? Hogan didn't think he could play this hole. And uh, he was right, by the way. Hogan was right. It was very tough. Yeah. So it's one of those, it's one of the few places they play a major championship that I can actually watch and go, I remember that hole. 18, yeah, I remember 18. Cool. And, and yeah, it is quite something. You talk about being nervous on the first tee. I told you that story when I, my yeah. first, my first iron shot from the fairway, I, I, I hit, I hit such a bad chunk that the, the divot from the chunk flew further than the golf ball. <laughs> it, was, it was so bad. I, it made me giggle. I was like, "Wow, oh, you, don't yeah. see, you don't see that every day." Good reaction. Good reaction. Oh, yeah. I, I just what I I don't remember a ton of that golf course because like 1990, I don't know. Oh, that's a long time so. ago. That's a long time ago. Oh but yeah. I remember it was sort of the words that come to mind are sort of uh, stately. Um, yes. Large. I mean, you, you're just sort of in this grand theater for golf. Yeah, it, it's amazing. You know, I was watching it last night on the broadcast, and they say that Sean McKeel's shot, that seven iron to the last hole, he hit it to a foot, is considered one of the greatest shots to win a tournament in major championship history on the last hole. And the guy's never been heard from again, mainly. I mean, he's kind of a journeyman player, but he hit this shot. And I remember thinking about it when I was there. I did not hit the green. Um, It's one of those courses that's so sneaky tough. And again, they didn't set it up for us like they do the uh, the championship. But this tournament I played in is an you know one of those old austere. So they set it up like it was rolling, man. And, and the whole thing is just like so top notch. And again, uh, we never got back in, even though we sent our resumes again. The thing is, if you miss it by, I think if you miss it, you miss the cut, you get one more chance. If you miss the cut by a certain number, you can't even. They would ask you not to apply anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't desecrate yes. that mailbox. <laughs> That's right. We're not really interested. Oh, oh, I remember going in the locker room. They have your names on the lockers. Oh, it was quite something back in the day. I think I still have our little name tags from, uh, you know, with the little Oak Hill logo and such. Anyway. And your girl, when you're gone, your girls will toss it out. Yeah, they'll go, well, what was this? What was this? Oak what? <laughs> uh, I don't have much more. Um what about you? Have you had a chance to play yet? You were, you were saying before yeah, the show yeah, you haven't... Uh, I've, I've played two 18-hole rounds where I didn't have to wear you know, my tailor-made bucket hat and Gore-Tex to keep the rain off. Nice. Um, I feel like I'm still sort of launching into this golf season. Um, yeah, I'm... Well, you and I are going to play the early bird this weekend. I'm excited about that. That's right. It's, you know, it's kind of a... You know, jump right into tournament season, so... I'm jacked about that. I'm going to play four days in a row. So where are you going to? What are you going to play? Uh, where are you going to play uh, Thursday, Friday, or uh... well, Thursday men's night at Blue Springs, and then right. on uh, Friday I'm playing with fellow with STD Ronan Quinn at Terendawa. Where's Terendawa? 
That's uh, it's it's on the way to London. You turn left, usually on Putnam Road. It's closed now uh, for construction. How far know. from it's London is thirds, it? It's almost about two thirds, three quarters of the way uh, to London from uh, the GTA. Do you have uh, room for the uh, GSL? Yeah, we already invited you. I thought you were going to be in St. Thomas. I was, but uh, yeah, I was going to be in St. Thomas, but I don't. I don't think I'm going to now. Ooh, uh, well, for, let me inquire with Ronan. Uh, that'd be fantastic. Um, I got like, what time is your? What time are you guys playing? Two p.m. That's fine because I'll drop off. Well, maybe not because I got to be in London to meet Fitz. Uh, Fitzsimmons has pulled out of the. This just in. Fitzsimmons pulls out of the early board. Early board. Early bird. Ooh. Uh, he hurt his wrist. He's a little worried because he's got some big tournaments next month. Like within the next month, he's got the Mid-Am, the Canadian Am, all that stuff. So uh, that's a headline story. It is. A head- you just heard it here yeah. in Ontario. It is. So that's why we I may not be playing St. Thomas, but I was going to meet him in St. Thomas for dinner Friday night. Anyway, this is not for podcast uh, consumption. It's just real life, folks. Um, <laughs> I uh, quickly I played with a uh, fellow guru. It was a two-man guru event with uh, Ken Osborne, the uh, Club Link shootout. That was just a couple days ago, Monday, Tuesday. I got this, this week's a lot of golf for me. I've got Monday, Tuesday, today is Wednesday night. I'm taking Friday, tomorrow off, and then I'm playing Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But Kent and I played your golf course on Monday, Blue Springs. Very windy day. The uh, first nine hole was a two-man scramble. The second nine holes was a uh, modified alternate shot. And after round one, uh, Guru Kent and myself were uh, tied for, no, I think we were just alone in fourth. Nice. We made seven birdies on your golf course between the two of us. Oh, sweet. But unfortunately, we made some silly bogeys, um, which isn't hard to do on that golf course. I will say this, though. The 10th hole at Blue yep, Springs. I was waiting for this. I got to tell you, we parted. it. But I will tell you, so that was modified alternate shot. He hit his down the middle. And I uh, hit mine in the left woods. And um, so for you, if you have people who have played it, you're sort of on a bit of a plateau right next to the 150-yard marker. Now, I normally hit my 6-iron 175 yards or so. But we're 150 yards away from the green, and we're talking over what I should do. I said, nah, it's, it's blowing, man. Like, it's, and there's a hazard there. I said, all I know is this. I got I to gotta hit something like 175, 180 and I will say this, of all the shots I've hit this spring, it was one of the best shots I've hit because it's a scary shot. I yeah. got it. And what I did is I hit it over the green, just at the back, like just in the back fringe, because I didn't want to be short. And I was saying that sometimes when you got the right club in your hand, it makes you feel like you can make a good swing. But I would tell you, Tim, I was thinking of you. I'm like, this is fucking scary, man. This is a scary hole to play every day. Like, it's just ridiculous. Well, it's just, it's like, there's a few holes at Blue Springs. It's like, where can you miss it? Yes. And and on 10, the only place you can miss it is long there. Yes, and, exactly. And so some people grouse about that. I think it's one of the charms of Blue Springs. Is you can just, like, everyone's playing it. So if we're playing, you know, in a Saturday morning group thing or Club C, everyone's playing this. And I also find that when I go to other courses um, – I don't find them quite as threatening, right? Because I've already been on a course that has a threatening hole by the neck. Well, that hole is one of those holes where it, it, it makes you think you need to hit it left, but you can actually hit it more to the right. But there's a great lesson in that. When you're playing your course this weekend and you're on the number one, two, three, four handicap holes and you're not a scratch or a plus golf, you're supposed to make bogeys on them. That's why there are those holes. That we, we, we ended up, he made a beautiful pitch to a couple of feet I made par. And I said to him, you know, an alternate shot, like you, we just need to par this back nine. We don't need to make a lot of birdies. And in fact, we made a couple, but we made four bogeys. So I think we were two. No, we were sorry, three bogeys. We were one over on that. But even one over in alternate shots, pretty good. But uh, there are just holes on every course where, you know, bogey's not a bad score. Second day was yesterday. We uh, super windy day at Greystone, another quirky golf course, and we moved up one spot and uh, tied for third. And uh, I was happy. We had a great time. He's a great third among geezers. Yes, the twenty-seven geezer teams, though. (laughs) Wow, yeah, a lot of teams, a lot of geezer teams. Um, 
Yeah, there was a kids and the young guys there were all like six under, seven under par. But our our the guys that won, uh, my better ball partner Kavanaugh, his team I think were five or six under. There was one team at even, and uh, two of us at one over. So it wasn't it wasn't easy. Uh, you and I are going to be a team. Another guru matchup um, next month. It's Sagin. Yeah, again. So look at it. it's all happening now. Golf is here, even though today in Toronto was four degrees. Yeah. It's unbelievable, man. Yeah, I'm supposed to do a coaching session tonight at uh at five o'clock and uh I'm I'm having second thoughts about it. <laughs> well, uh, the good news is it's supposed to be uh hang on, let me get this going here. It's Sunny, to, at least. Well and uh the hottest part of the day, thirteen for the high today will be later this afternoon. Thank you to Oscar Bravo, who is OscarBravo.com, TaylorMadeGolf.ca and uh, Raymond Pryor and uh, Golf Beneath the Surface. Good read for you. As well, speaking of good read, I highly recommend uh, subscribing to uh, Tim O'Connor's Substack where you can find... Where can I get that? Uh, T.O'Connor.substack.com And if you can't remember all of that, just go on Substack and do the search thing for me. Search Tim O'Connor, your latest uh, thing when you told the story. And uh, it was great. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> whatever, whatever that was, that was a good one. And, of course, uh, this program produced by Humble and Fred Radio. Humbleandfredradio.com. See you next week. Coming in out of the rain to hear the jazz go down. Competition 